This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.com for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House Global InsureTech Series. I'm Nick Hoadley, and each week you can join me as I interview leading InsureTech executives from around the world. We will be learning about the different InsureTech technologies and finding out how they can be a benefit to both insurance brokers and carriers when it comes to delivering for your customers. We'll also be learning about the different career opportunities available to insurance leaders within the InsureTech space and what benefits that can give to your career. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I'm joined by John Tallarida, who is the Executive Vice President and Board Member at Heffern Insurance Brokers. John heads up the wholesale brokerage there, and he's also the CEO of Costero Brokers here in the UK. Welcome to the show, John. It's great to have you on today. I know you're in the UK today, as opposed to sunny California. How are you getting on? I'm doing well, Nick. I get over here a good part of the year, probably half my year right now spent over here. And it's it's always difficult to leave the weather in California, which is generally better. But although this last trip, it was equal, which was surprising. But now it's good. It's always one of my favorite places to be. So, Yeah, it's a fantastic. I mean, the insurance market, obviously, in London is a fantastic place to be. We can't give you the weather, but, you know, you can't have it sunny every day. It'd be boring. Although I'm sure that's not the case in, in, in California over there. So, John, would you mind by sort of introducing yourself, sharing with our listeners a bit more about your career, your journey, particularly at Heffernan, and then also some of the work you're doing there at Costero? Absolutely. So, so I've been in the business. I came out of school and went right to Chubb Underwriting for three years. And I was lucky enough to get in a unit there that did uh, all lines of insurance for financial institutions called, uh, it was called the Department of Financial Institutions. And that's, I do think that was one of my greatest uh, advantages early on was learning how to underwrite um, multi-lines, DNO, you know, property casualty and all that, workers comp, everything. And then after three years there, um, I had the itch for broking, although everyone I worked with at Chubb told me I'd be a broker someday. I was okay. still in denial and then finally figured it out. So I went to uh, A&A, which has long since been acquired by Aon. I was there for two years as a broker. And no offense to your listeners that work for big firms, but I realized that wasn't for me, uh, the kind of bureaucracy involved there. So went searching, went back to my my roots, back to California, where I grew up. That was This was all happening in the Midwest where I went to school. And I went to uh, back to California and interviewed with a bunch of firms. And I found this uh, quirky hippie dude that owned a small firm of uh, 18 people in Walnut Creek, California. And that was Mike Heffernan. And at the time, I was a 19th employee, and I think we we're about 800,000 in revenue. And I joined him in April 91. And that was 30 uh, in April. Well, this month, actually, I actually shoot. I think it's any day now I celebrate yeah. my 31st uh, anniversary with Mike. Incredible, incredible. And talk me through then the change during that time at the brokerage for some of <laughs> maybe for some of our UK listeners who might not be so aware of Heffern and what, what's been the change over that period of time. Yeah, well, whenever you scale a company like that, and it's different, I guess it's a little different than the way scaling companies happens today, because a lot of it's very rapid. And it's generally through roll ups and you know, three or four 
five or 10 or whatever companies coming together. For us, it was very gradual for the first couple of years. It was primarily organic growth. I mean, really, we were primarily organic growth company up until about six years ago when we started to really look actively at M&A. So my whole background has been bringing young people on, mentoring them up, mentoring up your colleagues, very collaborative environment where you can't possibly get along unless everybody's getting at it together because it's impossible to be organic growth really as a company without a very strong collaborative culture. So that's all I've really known. I mean, the first eight years of the company, we grew uh, no less than 25% every single year. And after that, it was funny as that slowed down, we thought that was just so weird, but that is what happens. And you learn to adjust to that. But it was interesting to start with such a small company and feel so close to it. And the worry that comes with as you grow it, I remember when we passed 50 people, I thought, we're going to ruin this firm. Well, now we're 540, and I think we still have a very strong culture. I'm sure it's not, it doesn't permeate all the way across the enterprise like it used to, but I'd still say it's very, very sticky within the company. But it has been, it, it's it's one of the things I'm actually, it's one of those things I look back on and I've enjoyed every day I've had my job. I've had three of them. This one I like the most. But it is very, it's been fun to be through that. And I feel like I'm really lucky to have experienced it that way. Uh, it sounds like a great journey, really, really incredible story, really starting out with just a team of 19 people over there and, and bringing the business to where you are today. What are the plans for the firm? What the growth plans are there? Are there any geographic regions that you're looking to expand further into? How are the next couple of years looking for you? Well, Heffernan as a retail broker is one of the few firms in the U.S. that's over 100 million that's still independent. So, and we know all of our all of our peers really well throughout the U.S. It's easy to know because there are not many of them left. But so for us, we're predominantly West Coast. We have a decent amount of our revenue that's uh, in the Midwest and the East. From a retail footprint standpoint, we have expanded into the East, and we're looking to do a little more of that as well as the Southwest. I mean, we're actively looking at uh, ways to expand the footprint. We're also actively bolting on to some of the offices we have in place. Like, for example, Southern California, I think there's a lot of headroom there for additional growth. Northern California is in fairly good shape, but we have offices in Arizona. We're in St. Louis. We're in Seattle. We're in Portland, Philadelphia. And so it's just, it's a, we try to be opportunistic about it. It's got to be, we're very, um, the first question we ask with any deal is, is it a cultural fit for us? And the metrics are important, but really are these people we want to do business with? And once we get past that, then you just figure out if the numbers work. And usually it's pretty, I'd say it has to be a two-way street. We have people, we'll do some deals where they may not have gotten the maximum money they could get, but they want to sustain the culture of their company, just like we want to do the same. So that tends to marry up really well. So from an expansion standpoint, we also have an MGA in the US. They're located in Northern California. They're looking for expansion opportunities as well. And, and then obviously we have the uh, operation here, which is effective. It's a wholesale broker in Lloyd's. So I guess you could say we change our geographic footprint, but that was a little more, little, I'd say 50% strategic and 50% passion on my part. So. Awesome. Awesome. And for our listeners, we do have a podcast later on this week with Nick from Postero. But John, would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit more about how that opportunity came around and what you're looking to build there at Costero here in London? Yeah, sure. We've I got lucky enough to be in the right bar in New York in 1992. And I met a couple of London brokers and was realized, and I had been accessing Lloyd's uh, through my prior employer uh, through US wholesalers and realized that I could go direct which was kind of an eye opener. And the access, having that capital more of a direct basis as a retailer, to me was a bit of a game changer. I think it's something that most retailers in the US, I'd say for your UK listeners, 
the trade with North America. I'm not saying uh, get rid of your American wholesaler. However, retailers in the U.S. who have a direct relationship with Lloyd, it's a real eye-opener for them. And I don't think most, uh, I'm very confident most retailers do not really appreciate the overall long-term benefits of the London capital. So, so in any event, I've always had an appreciation for it. I've had a few buddies in the market. I've tried to take a shot at getting something off the ground with for whatever reason, it didn't work. We had a gentleman we traded with, Nick Merle, that you'll be with next week. And Nick was at JLT, did some direct business with us on the property side. And we had conversations with Nick about would he be interested in doing this? And we did the, pulled out a 400,000 pound book. I mean, it wasn't much, brought him out of JLT, did the one person Brella and her buddy mine's firm, 19 months to get, get every, all the authorizations through Lloyd's, through the banking, through the FCA. Absolutely painful and grueling. Huge barrier for entry, but we got through. And then uh, once that was established, started looking for M&A opportunities and have since acquired two firms. So it's been a good journey. I won't take uh, spoil what Nick's going to tell you, but we've had a really good time doing it. It's been four years on. And effectively to me, it's reminiscent of starting with Heffernan again back in the day, although I'm a touch older, but it is that that is kind of the DNA of our company. We were really not good at sitting still. Maybe mm. we should be, but it's just not uh it's not one of our strong suits. Yeah, no, so interesting, exciting. And you you talk about Lloyd's there, John, as we are in London today in the insurance coffee house. What is your go-to coffee of choice that normally gets you going in the day? So I'm uh, I get a lot of crap for this in the US, but I've been an English breakfast tea guy in the morning for years now. But uh, in the afternoon I break all the Italian rules and I have cappuccino after lunch and I couldn't possibly do that in Italy, but I can do it in England and the in the US, so I get away with that. You're breaking all the rules there, John. Yeah, English, I am. <laughs> English tea in the morning, cappuccino in the afternoon. That is a, a rebellious streak in you, surely. Exactly. <laughs> Great stuff, John. John, if I can kick us off by asking you a little bit more about your career. So how did you break into your first C-suite position, presumably at, at Heffernan? And how did you find that transition from your previous role, which may well have been more plant-facing or it might be in more of a technical role? Right. Um, it, so I guess um, indicative of the entrepreneurial spirit of our firm, the only job I've ever been asked to take in our company is the UK operation with Castero. So it took me th- uh, 27 years for Mike to actually ask, give me a job. The rest of them have all been effectively my idea, like maybe we need someone to do this. What about this? So I was broking for nine years in with Heffernan and you know, all of us have to eat what we kill. We're all brokers here. We're all percentage-based. We have to grow our businesses. Definitely was considered successful in my endeavors there. I have a, still have a large book of business to this day. So we're all salespeople in our company. And that's one of the things I think is, makes us strong because the whole management team are salespeople, a successful salespeople with large books and clientele. So we know the business. We know the trade. We don't have a lot of real I guess, managers in our company. We're salespeople that mm. hopefully learn to manage well. So nine years in, I was Honestly, uh, Nick, just getting a little bored, was sitting down with Mike over lunch, a sushi place we go to all the time, and I'm sure there were a few drinks involved. And we had an office that we recently acquired up in Petaluma in Northern California. And I just said, you know, nothing's really happened up there. It's kind of leaderless. What do you think about me taking a shot to seeing if I can work at sales management? And knowing that the sales managers I've worked with in the past, I thought were, um, I'll just say, uh, Subpar. So I thought it was, I look back and I think that's kind of audacious that the job I think most people are really poor at. I just thought, sure, how hard could it be? So in any event, I jumped in there. That was a, I think we had about 600,000 of commercial revenue there when I went up. Was there until, I think I did that job 90, 
98 to 2001. And we got up to about 3 million, three and a half million at the time. And then I moved to, then from there, I moved into another office and took on other things. But that was my first foray. And it was just more a matter of, I had an itching to do something else. It seemed like the most reasonable next step. And like anything, at least in our company, you know, people do fail and you're going to make mistakes. And I'm sure Mike's attitude at the time was, well, if it doesn't work out, he still has a book of business. He'll figure something else out. And that's the way I went into brokerage when I joined Mike initially. I told my wife because it was a big jump. It's a commission sales job. It was a small firm. It was a huge step from you know, geographically. It was a huge step, size of company. And I told her at the time, I said, look, worse comes to worse. I'll always get a job in insurance. Yeah, but I want to try to take a shot at this career. And that's kind of that's kind of how I tend to go into most things. Figure my worst case scenario is I'll find a way to survive and go back to what I was doing before. So what, what would you say has been the biggest achievement in your in your leadership career to date? Well, I'd like to tell you in a couple of years' time that it's going to be the London operation, but it's yeah. too early to say that. I'd say we had a, um, nobody in Southern California. And, you know, I don't know, probably 10, 14 years ago, probably 14 years ago. And I basically started that with the guy who runs it today, uh, Ben Stern. And I, uh, he, I, I, he came out to our firm from USI, one man shop. I had him sitting in effectively a closet of the wholesaler that we own down there. And from that one individual hire, now we've got 14 million of revenue down there and about 60 people and making a lot of money. I think for that, the only reason I call that probably one of my better achievements is throughout the whole thing, I had a number of people wondering why we were doing that. And we lost plenty of money up front on it. And I'm in kind of a similar situation here. I'm further along and more mature in my career. So everyone trusts me more now than they did then. But they also trusted me then. But those are, you know, it's a challenge when you're pushing your your peers out of their comfort zone and pushing them to trust you. Not Not that they don't but you're kind of getting to the limits of that trust. I, I find that kind of, I don't know, challenging. And, but I also find it somewhat invigorating to be getting that close to the edge on things like that. I don't want to do it a lot. And I think this is the last one I have in me, but uh, I think, you know, if you're not, I tell people all the time, if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, I really just don't think you're getting the most out of yourself. So if you're, you know, kind of like, Oh, this is great every day. Yeah. You know, there's, something challenging about making yourself really concerned about your decisions and, and pushing yourself to the limit of, am I, is this the right thing to do? So, but we've always had a good collaborative team. So even with the, the Southern Cal bit, there are people who are worried about it. There are people who weren't. With London, it's not near as dire as it was with that that deal because that took a lot longer than it should have. But anyway, I was a lot younger then. Well, it sounds like you've been at exactly the right firm for for your personality, for your career aspirations you know, taking, taking risk, really pushing yourself to the, to your boundaries, to your limits there. So, you know, having, having a firm and, and, and having that relationship with Mike, which has allowed you to do that, I'm sure has been a, been a huge benefit. In terms of setbacks, have you, have you had any setbacks over your leadership career? How have you gone about getting over, getting over some of those challenges? Oh yeah, I've had a number of setbacks. I think it's, uh, the, the thing about our man, I think it's really important for me that I'm surrounded by people that I trust and I, I care about. I mean, I think a lot of the things that the setbacks I've had would have been impossible alone. I don't know how people, frankly, do this stuff when they operate in a bit of a vacuum and just take everything on themselves. And when I do that, I know I'm at my worst. So yeah, I've had a number of setbacks in my career. I mean, Mike and I will have, if you get us late enough at night, we'll argue who lost the most money for the company in one of their investments, So, um, which isn't the most constructive conversation. But it's the idea that you are going to make mistakes. You know, we all screw up. 
And it, the culture of our company is when you're an organic growth company, you will make a bad investment. The trick is, are you doing it in a smart way and you're failing fast enough that you're not crippling other elements of the business and eroding your profit to a point that you can't survive the mistake? So for us, it's, I guess, for me, I guess I don't, they are setbacks, but to me, it's more, if I do it right, it's a learning experience. It's not, an, you know what I mean? I mean, it's something that makes you better down the road. So I do think my career Every step of my career makes me uniquely better set for the next thing that comes my way. And we're very particular about who takes those things on. So, for example, we made some changes in our company recently, and we moved some of us around on the chess table because some people are going to be better in other areas than others, and we accept that. And some things I'm going to be better at, other people are going to be a better fit. Is it a setback that you get pulled out of that? You know, or maybe that you just have to accept you're not as good as that one piece. It's just kind of figure getting into the right groove so you can do the best you can for the overall company. But mm-hmm. I do think I'm really lucky I'm in a collaborative environment. Honestly, that that is probably one of the more stand most standout traits of Heffernan for me. Yeah. And it, yeah, it sounds like going back to what we're describing in the in the last question, that it's it's that environment that allows you to do that, to take those risks, to take those steps forward, knowing that there are going to be bumps and you know mistakes. Things are not always going to go right, but it's important to have that that environment. And, and like you say, failing fast is very important as well and recovering quickly. So if, if we can bring things up to the current day now, John, how are you adopting new technology or what sort of digital change are you using there at the moment in order to really meet the needs of your customers there at Heffernan? Yeah, so we've been a very active investor and adopter of technology as much as we can be in the business. Early days in the US, InsureTech was uh, coming in to basically disrupt our business. And a lot of the talk was, you know, the days of the broker are gone. I heard this in 2000. I heard it, yeah, I've heard it a couple of years ago. But now that, at least in the US, and I think over here as well. It's really transitioned more into the focus is on the distribution side of the business. Um, you know, taking risk is just going to be left to the capital providers. I don't think anyone's, I mean, who knows, maybe at some point, but I think disrupting that's going to be pretty difficult. The distribution chain has been really interesting. We've, uh, what we generally do is we will, if we adopt a technology, we'll invest in it and then uh, help incubate it and bring it along. So we've had a number of companies that we've done that successfully. Although I'd say one of the most innovative places or innovative companies we've worked with is a company we invested in years ago. And it's not, I wouldn't call it an insure tech, but I do think it's a the ability of just taking the processes that you do day to day and finding a more effective way to do those. And sometimes that's not technology. We, we contract with a firm that we use in India that's got 4,000 people in India. And I know that's been done in the UK for years. In the US, it's relatively new. But the idea of just, it may not, you know, there's not one answer to all these things, but it's looking at your processes and just getting an idea of where can I make a more effective change, even if it's hiring people in different state in the US where you can do remote working, which obviously with post-COVID, I think everyone looks at that with a very fresh set of eyes. Or, yeah, it, or finding something that's technology. So we did have, we actually had a couple of really interesting things we've done in the US in terms of just applications where a PDF uh, application immediately uploads into your operating system. Seems simple enough, but you do that and you've eliminated so many steps in the chain. An account manager sending it to the client, the client going through it, maybe having to do it on paper and then sending it on PDF. Just that simple process saves a ton of time. So there are all sorts of, for me, I think, 
I always wish there was a silver bullet on this stuff. I've started to learn that it's just baby steps. So there are little bits that impact here or there, and you just got to add those up. And having that true partnership with some of those businesses who are looking to enable the broker or help the broker to do an even better job for their customers. Looking ahead now, if you do have a crystal ball, John, what do you think are the major challenges ahead for insurance executives and how should they be adapting over the next few years in order to be successful? I I think one of the uh, biggest challenges is the huge amount of capital in the business that can be used to overpay for people, overpromise, overpay for firms. Um, I do think selfishly, I think the kind of aggregation in the business is, I think that's a challenge because I I do think, I think it's a, it's great for the people that cash out. I don't think it's good in the long run for the business. The carriers being squeezed the way they are on their profits, you know, they don't invest the way they used to in talent. I mean, when I came into the business, Chubb had a huge Chubb AIG, try to go else, had these huge training programs and there are hundreds of people coming into the business. That doesn't happen anymore in the U.S. So the broker chain is not as, I'd say, educated and technical as it used to be. And even in the U.K., I've seen that compared to 20 years ago, the underwriters and the brokers and the technological expertise that was there. So I do think the amount of capital I'd say this is probably the wrong way to say it, but I think it's made us a little lazy because it's just so easy to get this money. And I don't know, I think that's going to be challenging down the road. I think the firms that find a way around that and focus on the core values of delivery to the client, um, really bringing a good forward-facing client product, focusing on the technology. But when you spend 18 times even to buy a firm or, you know, 200,000 to get a new employee. And you know, those, they, they erode your ability to really bring a lot of that customer service to the front, to the client. And I, I worry a little bit about that. So, so I think that's not necessarily a challenge to me or our firm, but I think it's a challenge to the industry. In terms of the firm, I think I basically dovetail off that same comment. It's really difficult to retain people, kind of sell them on the long-term goal of what we're trying to accomplish when they can walk across the street tomorrow and just someone will give them just an obscene amount of money. They may not be in that job in two years' time, but it does kind of screw up the playing field a bit. Yeah, I think it's difficult for the industry as a whole. Do you think that coming through the COVID pandemic that there would be a lot leaner businesses, a lot more companies looking to really extract value from money from everything, but it seems to be even more and more capital in the market and bigger bigger pockets just to go out and buy things. That, That's that, fascinating. I mean, yeah. it's a fascinating time. Mm. It's just, I think, for the long term, yeah, I think they're the independent model, like what I'm trying to do here in the UK and what I do think, I think what's interesting is if you think back on community banking in the 19, what was that, night, late 80s in the US, they all got bought up. The laws changed and all these firms could aggregate and a lot of these community banks went away. Since then, a lot have come back. And it's been the regulators have made it easy for them to do that. In the US, it's relatively easy to start up as a firm. We're seeing more of that state by state. I do worry a little bit in the UK, and just insofar as it's so difficult to get up and running the barrier for entry from the requirements, the FCA, Lloyd's, and also just just banking, just getting a bank account. Even with Heffernan backing us up here, I was shocked at how long it took me to get a banking relationship in the UK. And it just shouldn't have been that hard with the amount of money we had behind us. But I think you need, you know, there's one, if there's anything that happens here, I hope that will become easier because if you allow people that pipeline to open up where people can kind of come back in and be entrepreneurial in the market, that it doesn't matter how much capital is out there, that capital will just flow to those new firms and help those guys grow. But that's important to the business. Mm-hmm. If you allow this just constant aggregation, that that is 
for the long term. I think, you know, I don't like to see it in capital providers and, and I don't like, I'm not sure I really like seeing it in distribution. Yeah, I'll see. It'll be interesting to see whether the, the markets correct themselves over the years or whether we keep going this, in the same direction. John, thank you so much for that. That really, really great insight there. Brings us also nicely on now to our espresso round where our questions, <laughs> <laughs> they're short, sharp and straight to the point. So yeah, I, we're not in Italy at the moment. I know you do like your cappuccino in the afternoon, but are you ready for the espresso round? Let's try it. <laughs> Let's give it a go. The espresso round. John, what are the characteristics about Hefnum which make it such a great place to work at? It's a very flexible company. It's a very forgiving company. And uh, it's a very driven company. And what opportunities do you provide there for high-performing insurance professionals or leaders who want to progress their careers to that next level? What, what are the opportunities that you provide for those people? I think we provide the opportunities they want, and I know that sounds a little uh, like out of a uh, bit out of a, a book, but an yeah, insurance book. But the idea that I want, we let people create the careers they want in our company, and we the access they have to the talent in the company is what I think our job is to facilitate that success. I've always thought my job is to keep really good people and facilitate their growth, but it's not to manage them, it's not to tell them how to do the job, it's to get that raw talent in. And then allow them to have access. I mean, one thing about our firm that's different than a lot, if they want to talk to a senior broker in our company, they will absolutely make time for them. And that does not happen in most firms. And they're never going to hear, oh, I don't have time for you. And if they did, me or Mike or Brian or Liz or any of our senior team would come down on that so hard because that's just not the company we are. So you have access to, you basically have all the help you need. It's just, are you tapping into it? And what are your goals? Mm-hmm. that real collaborative environment flipping things around slightly when you are looking to bring people into the business give them that opportunity what are some of the things that you demand from them in terms of their personality or skill set interesting question i think a lot of that is obviously um you know it's always tough to do because people i have people who test and they have these great tests they want to get for me it's always gut instinct when i meet someone and when i'm meeting someone i'm always looking for number one just work ethic mm-hmm. i mean is 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 this person just naturally comfortable with just getting their hands turning and getting at it. Flexibility, the idea that we'll do whatever I have to take, uh, have to do to succeed. And then, um, I mean, so just some basic smarts. I mean, is this someone who can kind of roll with the punches and, and can grasp the elements of the industry? It is not a, for us, we hire people as retail salespeople, but it's a technical product and you have to be able to grasp the product. And depending on what you do, I mean, if you're coming in deciding to do lawyers, professional liability or something of the sort, medical mouth. I mean, that's hugely different than property casualty, but you could easily get pulled into that. So you mm-hmm. do have to be, um, you have to have some brains. Yeah, you have to be very, very dynamic and also, yeah, smart, like you say. In terms of the largest challenge you face when recruiting, when bringing people into the organization, what can some of the largest challenges be with with recruitment or what can some of the biggest frustrations be when, when trying to attract talent to the business? Oh. Just finding talent. It's so difficult to find talent. And also, we really here in in the U.S. Yeah, the DNI DNI has been a big thing for a while now. But for us, diversity has always been a huge part of who we are. In particular, getting in the sales force, trying to get our sales force balanced between male and female, not have it dominated by men in the industry. And we've made huge efforts there um, since you know for the 31 years I've been at the firm. But it is finding good talent, regardless of diversity, is just is a basic challenge is really, really not easy. Yeah, I'm very 
hopeful over the next few years that with the advent of insure tech and with the way that the insurance industry has responded to the the pandemic the numbers that been the way the businesses have been performing over this time i'm hoping that it's going to attract a lot more people into the industry and people generally when people find out about the industry and start working in the industry they don't they don't leave or they find it as this secret hidden gem that they never knew about, right? You know, they're not taught at college or university to be an insurance broker, an agent, but actually, you know, to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. So I think, and I, I really do hope that that's going to open things up for more talent to come into the industry because we certainly need it from a succession point of view. Yeah, I, I hope so too. The, the only, I guess, like when you talk about the challenge, just going back to that question, the one thing though that I do, I'm concerned about is this post-COVID work from home mm. flexibility. I think it's really important. And for senior people, I have no problem with that flexibility. I mean, it's great. I, I do think, I know I will personally be challenged with how do I mentor up somebody who doesn't want to come into the office mm. or seldom comes in? And how do I, when we talk about the excessive, the being having all this access to senior brokers, that's great, but you have to be around to have that access. And I don't think, I think Zoom is a poor uh, substitute for face-to-face when it comes to mentoring, certainly solving an individual problem. Mm. But when you think, you know, when I think back to my career, the numerous lunches and cocktails and nights out, trips, and just getting to know people and really picking brains and having all that quality time, I think it's going to be difficult to do if uh, the next uh, generation of workforce comes up with this idea that, why do I need to go to the office? Yeah, absolutely. All of that informal networking, all that informal learning, almost training, you know, on the job, picking someone's brains over a beer in the bar afterwards, you know, is, is yeah. just great. It's a great learning ground. And if you're on Zoom and you have to schedule 15 minutes in, 30 minutes into someone's diary, that's just not going to happen, right? So uh, and if you've never done that, you can, it's one of those things like if you haven't experienced it, you don't know the value of it. Right. And that's what I worry about with the younger kids mm-hmm. coming into the business. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Lloyd's, and I was in Leadenhall having beers and I saw 20 different brokers. And you re- that just, that's just, you can't, there's no, no substitution for that. No, it's not. Absolutely. Absolutely. John, final question in the espresso round. If there are any insurance executives out there in the US, or I suppose this applies to the UK as well. So considering their next opportunity at the moment, what would your advice be to them? <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm not sure I have an answer for this one. There is a real need for expertise from those of us who've been around a long time. For exe- So I'd say for executives who've been in this business for 30, 40 years and have, have a lot to offer, I'd absolutely encourage them to go on a role where they can really impact younger people coming into the business. I mean, I think I, I do think there's a an experience gap in the business that I see developing because uh, the business is being run more and more, and more by managers and with more financial metrics driving. So for anyone out there that's got real sales expertise, knows how you know entrepreneurial drive a business, I think to get into a position where you're really influencing that next generation, because I do think people are coming into the business and seeing it as more of a just run to make a certain EBITDA target. And that's not how the business used to be. I mean it's not, you know, it's important to make money. It's important to perpetuate your company for sure. But I think the squeezing has gotten so tight it sucked a lot of the mm. kind of fun and vision out of the business. So um, uh, you can tell I'm banging the same drum there, but it is something I'm a little, I'm acutely aware of and a bit worried about. 
No, that, and that's inspiring for the, for the next generation as well, John. I really appreciate that. John, we've almost reached the end of our time today. Time has certainly blown. Before we go, though, do you have do you have one piece of closing advice for our listeners? And if someone wants to reach out to you after the show, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. My uh, email address is jt at hefgroup.com. It's on the website. And feel free to give me a shout an email. And I'd be happy to chat with anybody about whatever. You know, the only advice I'd, I'd say is just first, I guess it'd be more for anyone starting out. Just it's a good business. And but if you're not ha- if you're not enjoying what you do, find something else. Yeah. But if you enjoy this business, it can be a really good ride. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, that John. I think that's I think that's really inspiring advice. And we will certainly post your your contact details there on our show notes, so listeners can click straight through and, and and reach out to you. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on the show. Lots of great learnings, lots of great advice. And really good to hear about Heffernan and also um, Costero as well. Yeah, good times, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing me on. To all the insurance and insure tech leaders out there, wherever you are listening around the world today, we thank you for tuning in. And I'm sure you would have gained a lot of valuable insights and learning from our guest today. If you did enjoy the show, please remember to download and subscribe to the pod to receive each one of our episodes directly into your app each week. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, I'd like to learn more about the competitive advantage that podcasts can give to your business when attracting talent. Please reach out to us at insurance-search.com or drop us a message on LinkedIn. Until next time, I've been Nick Codley. This has been the Insurance Coffeehouse Global InsureTech Series. Take care. You've been listening to the Insurance Coffeehouse with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.